This is The Guardian. Today, how Ukraine pulled off one of its biggest breakthroughs since the Russian invasion. Tonight, Ukraine is on the offensive and quickly gaining ground, reclaiming the largest swath of Russian-controlled territory since April, when forces pushed the Russians out of the outskirts of Kyiv. After months of a grinding stalemate in eastern Ukraine, the news over the weekend surprised even the closest observers, like The Guardian's defence editor, Dan Saber. Your first reaction actually is, um, is it real? Can this really be happening? President Zelensky saying Ukraine has liberated at least 30 settlements and reclaimed nearly a thousand square miles of land around Kharkiv. So the, you're spending a lot of time constantly trying to work out what's going on, but as it unfolds over the weekend, your reaction is, is this really happening? Russia's front line quite literally crumbling. The control of land they fought to capture now gone in Ukraine's lightning advance. Villages and cities, held by the Russians in some cases since the beginning of the war, were one by one falling back into Ukrainian hands. The residents of Zaliznichna seem quite dazed by what's happened. What we've seen in the last week is an extraordinary, extraordinary rapid advance by Ukrainian forces in a part of the front, the northeast, being largely neglected by pretty much everybody, by military analysts, journalists, commentators, um, and so it also appears by the Russians. Ukraine's victories over the past few days have wiped out months of Russian gains. The speed of their advance and how they did it is changing calculations of how this war might play out sending a message to Western capitals that Ukraine can win this with the right support and shockwaves through the Russian army and all the way to the Kremlin. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how Ukraine smashed through Russian lines and what Moscow might do next. Dan, the events of the past few days are being widely celebrated, but can you take me through exactly what's happened on the ground in northeastern Ukraine? How did this all play out? So there's a, a wide river called the Oskil River, which is another few dozen miles behind the Russian front lines as they were. And the Ukrainians initially penetrated, attacked a village called uh, Balakilia, roughly in the middle of this wedge of territory the Russians held, west of this river towards Kharkiv. And then suddenly over the weekend, the Ukrainian forces broke through. <laughs> They drove through to the Oskil River and essentially cut the Russian forces in two. To the south lay the strategic city of Izum, it had been captured by the Russians in a fierce fighting at the end of March, and they'd cut off its rail and road supplies. So suddenly Izum is in, in jeopardy, and this is happening at dramatic speed over the weekend. Similarly, just to the north is the rail and road town uh, Kupiansk, also on this Oskil River. And the Ukrainians also sort of headed north to capture Kupiansk. You know, somewhere in all this, the Russians realised they were in a losing position. They were defending a front line that, well, they couldn't defend. 
Ukrainian forces have been routing the Russians in a key sector. They've sent them just heading for the high grass. Kremlin basically ordered a retreat and they ordered a retreat across this Oscar River, abandoned Izum, abandoned Kupiansk. It sounds like rather than try to fight the Russians in every one of these towns and cities in this territory, the Ukrainians decided to just drive straight through it, in effect, cutting the Russians off from each other and from any reinforcements. And faced with that predicament, the the Russian soldiers, perhaps understandably, said, hey, we're not sticking around for this and decided to retreat back over the river. So if that's the what happened, the next question is how? How did the Ukrainians manage to pull this off? Well, that's a very interesting question. Until now, the Ukrainian forces have shown a tremendous capacity for defence and had been largely trained as such, actually, in the run-up to the start of the war in the belief that Russia would probably overwhelm the country, they would have to fight a war, initially blunting their offence, and then thereafter a kind of partisan war against an occupying power. But we hadn't seen the Ukrainians really being able to mount offensive operations. And I think what they had in the background here was they had a lot of support from the West. So firstly, they had Western intelligence. For months now, the US and the UK, uh, the, the UK doesn't like to talk about it. The US loves briefing about it. The US and the UK have been providing intelligence about targets that Ukraine can hit. And here I mean military command posts, ammunition dumps, logistics hubs. And Ukraine has been using... Western, some Western weapons, most notably these longer range MLRS rocket artillery, uh, US HIMARS, these British and German M270 weapons. And they've been using those with great effect to sort of knock out Russia's ability to, to respond by knocking out targets in the rear. But there's also Western training. There's training for troops on the ground, infantry training, basic training. Some of that's been happening in places like Yorkshire and the UK. But it's more about strategic training. How do you run an offensive operation. And and the West has been quietly training the Ukrainians how to do that. So they've been quietly, quietly building up this capability. This has been a really attritional conflict, like World War One, with very little movement on the battlefield for months. And then suddenly you're seeing, you're talking about a gain of about 70 kilometres in a straight line, actually, over a few days. And you've been able to do that because Ukraine has had a lot of Western supplied, lightly armoured vehicles able just to move its troops around to exactly where the point of breakthrough is and the point of advantage is. Okay, and this manoeuvre clearly caught Russians by surprise because Ukraine has been advertising for weeks that it's going to launch an offensive much further south around the city of Kherson. And so was that the, the, the bait and switch, the trick, to say they were going to throw all of their resources down south and then hit them up north when they weren't prepared? I mean, there are some people who are claiming that it was a bait and switch, as you described, that yes, there was a big fake by the Ukrainians to appear to attack Kherson and then switch to Kharkiv. There's no real evidence to suggest that. The reality is that what happened was that Russia moved a lot of its better combat battle-hardened troops down to Kherson. There are about 20,000 Russian troops defending the area west of the Dnieper. And there are about 20,000 Ukrainian troops. Uh, one-on-one is no way to, to make big progress on a on a battlefield, although Ukraine has been gaining some ground. But it was a real attack, but it had also real advantages. And I think what was interesting was that Ukraine was able to generate a force from reserves relatively fresh and able to capture all this ground. And what did this Russian withdrawal actually look like? It sounds like it was sudden, it even panicked. I mean, these guys were running for their lives. Yes. So, Let's be clear here. The Russians ordered a withdrawal at some point over the weekend. Some units 
did so in a fairly organised and disciplined fashion. Others basically panicked and it was a sort of straight up rout. Mounds of munitions lie left where their owners fled. So swift was the Russian retreat. They didn't even have time to finish their lunches, according to Ukraine's most senior soldier. And also Russian soldiers did what I'm afraid Russian soldiers have shown a habit of doing, which is on the way out, they looted what they could. So they went out in some disarray and also they left behind large amounts of military equipment, some of it quite valuable, actually. And I think Ukraine will have captured, uh, says it's captured quite a lot of Russian soldiers. One Ukrainian presidential advisor said so many Russian troops were captured in this Ukrainian advance this weekend that Ukraine is now running out of space to keep all of their Russian prisoners. And one of the big issues here is actually what is the morale of Russian forces here uh, fighting? Uh, and I think we have to be a little careful here. There's no question this shows weak and soft morale of the Russian forces, but these were not in the main the best quality Russian forces. These were, uh, you know, National Guard, separatists in part. So this is not a large component of elite forces. But but nevertheless, there are plenty of Russians who wanted to and did did surrender. And so that will help ultimately with prisoner of war exchanges. I mean, generally, Russia has more Ukrainian prisoners than Ukraine has Russian prisoners, it should be said. And is this offensive now over? I mean, is Ukraine still pushing to try to press its advantage here? There's certainly a big push. The Ukrainians seem to be wanting to push now north of the Siversky Donets and try and pick up other places, uh, regain territory that they had lost again in March and April, about the time of the loss of Izium. But equally, there are real dangers of going too far on uh, an counteroffensive. Speedy advances like this for the Ukrainians can be a double-edged sword, though territory taken needs to be secured and the temptation to overstretch can become intoxicating. The Russian military appears to be in disarray in the northeast for now, but after the Russian retreat here, the Russians will regroup. And after that, what then? So Ukraine's going to be mindful of that. And the country's defence minister was sort of was, was saying that we need to consolidate. So a more likely scenario is they will consolidate the gains they've made west of the Oskil and try and sort of and, and try and push forward. But I'm very wary of making any concrete predictions because the true dynamic here is the situation is fluid. I think when most of us saw this news on Saturday, it was obviously really hopeful. But it also came with a sense of foreboding because I remember what followed the Russian withdrawal from the areas around Kyiv earlier this year. And that was the discovery of horrible things in places like Bucha and Irpin and all these other cities that have become notorious where we saw evidence of terrible war crimes. Are we getting any sense at this stage that in the wake of the Russian withdrawal, we might find similar things? I think grimly we almost certainly will. There is some initial evidence of bodies being found on the edge of villages with uh, torture marks. Across the street, the police are finally able to investigate Russia's suspected war crimes. They've come to retrieve the bodies of two men. His next-door neighbour found the men and had to bury them in the garden. These aren't as densely populated areas as Butcher and Erpin, but where the Russians have been in occupation and where anyone's tried to resist, certainly a, a cruel fate has awaited people who've tried to resist them. So I think we are quite likely to, 
to see that and more evidence of that. And that is a grim and depressing reality. It does also stiffen up Ukrainian resistance and Western resolve. I'm told that the thing that really helped with recruitment of Western volunteers was actually the tragic events like the mass grave that was found in Butcher, the evidence of war crimes, Butcher and Erpin. If we see evidence of that on a large scale, and I, I fear that we may, then um, yes, that will have a profound effect on public opinion and I think sharpen up people's desire to resist. Dan, the advance you've described here sounds just extraordinary, a game changer, and one that's come in the nick of time. Like, I want to understand the significance of that timing, that this has happened in September, just a few months before winter really sets in in the region. Two things to say about this. This advance is significant in the sense that it's shown what the Ukrainians can do. It's shown a meaningful shift in territory. It's shown the Ukrainians making use of the sort of Western intelligence weapons and support they've had so far. It's shown that the Ukrainians can counterattack. It's shown that the Russians are brittle and tactically vulnerable. It's shown that Russian forces may have low morale in areas, particularly where they're poor, poor quality troops. But Russia still holds a fifth of Ukraine. If you look at the whole occupied territory, though this is meaningful, it is still only a small part of the Russian-occupied territory in Ukraine. Uh, As you said yourself, the weather is about to turn. So actually, sometimes it can have a complicated dynamic where as the rain sets in in autumn, maneuverability on fields and open ground becomes really difficult. But then actually, when it freezes and the winter gets really cold, the ground becomes hard and you have some more options in terms of maneuverability. But there's another point underlying your question, which is about there is a different timing, if you like, ahead of winter. And, And really, this has been a crucial crucial moment in morale terms. Why? Because there's not just a a shooting war in Ukraine, but Russia is engaged in an economic war against the West. So Russia's turning off the gas supply taps. We all know that energy prices have been shooting up. And of course, a country like Britain can say, or a Western country say, you know, the cause in Ukraine is worth fighting for. But these are big numbers. These are big economic costs. And you're not saying to your electorates, well, we've got this open-ended cost because Vladimir Putin has turned off the taps. A war has been started that we say we're helping out Ukraine, but we've got no way of ending either. And, and suddenly Ukraine has gained this large chunk of territory and shown for the first time, really, that it can regain meaningful ground for the Russians. And that going into winter is extraordinarily important in morale terms. Coming up, Guardian foreign correspondent Sean Walker on how this defeat is playing out in Russia. It starts the same way. Can I tell you a secret? It would start off with a random girl and just say, hey, hun, I'm going to tell you some secret now. Please don't mention it to anybody. But it quickly escalates. It just spread like a wildfire. I still sleep with clubs next to my bed. I didn't know how far this was going to go. People seldom show their true selves online, but one man He's taken it much further. I was terrified. Who is the cyberstalker behind these messages? 
He actually said to me, good luck proving it's me. And why is he sending them? Because he became more and more isolated, he just went within himself even further. Do you punish someone for acting out whatever is going on in their mind that we don't understand? And if I could just turn back the clock... From The Guardian, I'm Shirin Tyler, and this is Can I Tell You a Secret? A story about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. Search for Can I Tell You a Secret? wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now. All episodes will be available on Friday, the 23rd of September. Sean Walker, you've been covering the war from the Russian side since the very beginning. How have the events of the past few days been received in Russia? Well, I think it's been interesting to watch. I mean, one of the advantages, of course, of having full control over the media is that you don't always have to answer the difficult questions. And and previously, we've sort of seen when things have not been going so well for Russia on the battlefield when we had the withdrawal from Kiev in the spring. You know, there was a little bit of a feeling of, well, we never actually wanted to take Kiev. This was all part of the plan. And I think anybody who was following the war on a day-to-day basis would know that that was nonsense. With this, it's a little bit different because Russia has directly gone into these areas. It has said openly and directly, Russia is here forever. It's handed out passports to people. Basically, you've got to live with Russia now. So I think when you look at this from the perspective of Moscow, this is an absolute disaster because they've been forced to retreat and, and you know, there really is no way to spin this as, as a regrouping, which is what the defence ministry rather forlornly tried to call it. It was very clearly a forced retreat. And how has official Russian state media dealt with this reality, that this is so indisputably a setback in the war? So one thing that's been interesting is is watching the debates on Russian television, uh, on the chat shows, which are a really big part of, of the sort of state TV propaganda package, is that the arguments and the debates have become much more unpredictable and much more real. So you often have, it's kind of a trope of these shows that you have one guy who comes on and says slightly oppositional stuff and then the other guests tear them down and it's obvious that this is the Western shill who knows nothing and and everybody else is very satisfied. And we've had this kind of strange spectacle in recent days where actually that person is clearly talking sense. And then some of the other guests are agreeing with them. Some of the, some of the guests are getting very emotional and, and sort of threatening them back. Um, and there's just this sense that, like, what was a very tightly controlled and carefully scripted circus where everybody knew their role. It was sort of slightly going off the rails a bit. Right, and what about Vladimir Putin? Has he publicly addressed these losses at all? So on Saturday, which was probably the the biggest day of of Ukrainian gains, um, and it kind of made for this really surreal comparison where, on the one hand... The Russian troops are retreating in disarray 
And at the same time, instead of chairing a strategy meeting or addressing the nation or talking to the troops fighting at the front, you've got Putin strolling around Moscow, opening these sort of amusement parks, essentially. Um, but I think it's a sign of, of, of how just you know, there wasn't a plan for this happening. And I think that seemed very clear when you were watching him uh, around Moscow on the weekend. And Putin's also, so far, done everything he can to stop this war from interfering in the lives of ordinary Russians. He's been careful to call it a special military operation, and he's fought it using only volunteer forces rather than calling for a draft and forcing Russians to join the army. If that isn't working on the ground anymore, is there any chance he might reconsider and declare this a full-blown war? What are his options here? Well, that's certainly one option, and it's something that a number of the more nationalist end of bloggers and, and opinion makers in Russia have been calling for. But there's also a strand of people, even among those types, who would say, look, this is actually not going to help. First of all, it would take months and months before we actually saw these people on the front lines. Secondly, having a whole bunch of, of conscripted people who don't really want to fight is not really going to be the answer to Russia's military problems. Probably now is the time where we need to see which one the Kremlin's going to pick. Is this a war to the end which Russia has to throw everything at? Or are they going to go for this more limited thing and, and take the humiliating defeats? When we had this discussion in spring uh, and people would say, well, okay, now the initial Russian war aim was to quickly take over the whole of Ukraine, install a new government and have a pro-Russian friendly government in Ukraine. That didn't work. So they moved to this more limited stated goal of territorial gains in the east of Ukraine, of annexing some territory, talking about referendums in the future. Now that that is starting to look precarious as well, I mean, if the Ukrainian advance continues, then I think we are getting into territory that even for the Russian propaganda machine, it's quite difficult to spin what on earth was the point of this whole thing if we're going to say at the end that we've taken one small town in, in uh, Lugansk region or whatever. And what about within the Russian military? Is there any chance we might start to see more dissent on the part of the people who are actually risking their lives in this war? So I think we're already seeing some things that, if you're a military commander, should be fairly shocking in terms of desertions, in terms of people saying they don't want to fight, in terms of demoralised troops. You just have to look at the amount of hardware and ammunition that was left behind by Russian forces during this recent Ukrainian offensive it seems very clear that, that large parts of the Russian army don't have the kind of motivation that the Ukrainians have because they're not fighting a, a war to defend their homeland. And I think many of them can see on the ground they were promised they were going in to liberate people and it's, it's pretty clear that's not what they're doing. As it drags on and as the winter comes and it gets cold, we may well see less and less enthusiasm, if you like, among the Russian troops. And I think that's also one of the reasons why the Kremlin will be very hesitant to implement any kind of mass mobilization. Surveys show that although most Russians say they support the war to some degree or another, there's a strong majority who is against mobilization. 
Okay, so given all of that, is this beginning to put pressure on Vladimir Putin internally in the Kremlin that possibly the biggest gamble of his more than 20 years in power appears to be going disastrously wrong? So it's been very clear since the very beginning of this that there were lots of people around the Kremlin, top business figures, even some top political figures who were extremely uneasy about this war from the start, who didn't think it was a good idea. But the circle of decision makers around Putin is very small. And, and, and we've started to see some cracks in the way the elites are talking about it. I mean, Ramzan Kadyrov, the leader of Chechnya, he came out quite directly a few days ago and complained about this retreat. He said he was going to be forced to, to bring it up with Putin if, if tactics weren't changed soon and sort of suggested that he felt that Putin didn't really know how bad things were on the front. We've heard other people on, on television chat shows start to talk about, you know, we need to find the people who have misinformed the president about this. So that's another line that could be taken that, you know, Putin was given bad information. But this was very clearly Putin's decision. It was very much his invasion. He was the one who kind of rallied his political associates in these very carefully televised meetings to, to justify the war right at the beginning. And so I think to some extent it will be his failure as well if it keeps going this way. But it certainly puts the pressure on him in a way that I don't think we've seen for many years. And I think there is going to be a majority of people around Putin who are very uneasy with the way this war is going. This is clearly a moment for, for Ukraine and its supporters to celebrate. But you also said it wasn't the end of the war or even nearly the end of it. So where do you think it fits into the overall story of this now more than 200-day-old conflict? What we have now is a war that looks like it may be part of a longer process. It's very difficult to see exactly how this will play out. But I think from the beginning, there was a feeling that, that this war can kind of end in two ways. It can end with the total defeat of Ukraine, or it can end with the total defeat of Putin and the Putin regime. And that any sort of frozen solution, uneasy negotiation, is probably just going to be a temporary solution. Uh, so putting it in that perspective, I mean, you know, we could be at day 200 out of 10 or 15 years. Probably that's not going to be 10 or 15 years of, of, of hot conflict on the front line. But it's going to take a long time before we can look back at this and say, you know, was this act three of 100 acts or was this close to the end? That was Sean Walker, The Guardian's Central and Eastern Europe correspondent. Thanks so much to him and also to defence editor Dan Saber. You can follow all our coverage of the war in Ukraine at theguardian.com. Before we go, The Guardian has a new series coming out soon. It's about a cyber stalker who wreaked havoc across the internet and ruined people's lives. It started the same way. Can I tell you a secret? A seemingly innocent message from someone who appeared to be a young woman. But as this six-part podcast explores, 
people are rarely their true selves online. And one man took it much further. Can I Tell You a Secret, a new six-part Guardian podcast about obsession, fear, and the lives we lead online. All episodes will be available from Friday the 23rd of September. You can find them wherever you find Today in Focus. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser and Harim Khan. Sound design was by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Homer Khalili. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Thank you.